You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination for a special bonus episode. We want to dig into the conversation that we had with Meg Wheatley. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, it's the first from season 10. And please do go back and listen before you continue with this episode, because everything that we talk about today is based on that conversation with Meg. We have received so much feedback on that episode And what we want to say to you is really two things. First is this is exactly what we hope happens with these podcast episodes. We hope that they spark imagination and conversation in your context and lead you to further discernment and discovery about your own purpose and faithful next steps. And the second thing we want to say is please keep telling us your responses and your feedback to these episodes. We love hearing from you. What thoughts, questions, ideas are stirring in you after you listen. So thank you for the feedback that you have given us and keep it coming. Our episode today features much of the feedback that we've received so far about the Meg Wheatley episode. And joining me today is our executive producer of the podcast and my colleague, Reverend Dr. Blair Thompson, who leads our learning and innovation work at Texas Methodist Foundation and Wesleyan Impact Partners. And as many of you know, if you have come across Blair, she is brilliant and thoughtful, and I am delighted to get to share ministry with her. So thank you for being here with us today, Blair. Thank you. That's so generous. And back at you on all that brilliant and Love working with you too, Lisa. Thanks. So we have invited two of our friends who happen to be also two of our most popular episode guests from previous episodes in our podcast, Gil Rundle and Danielle Schroyer. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So instead of reading your bios today, which folks can see in our show notes, I want to start by sharing why we invited each of you to help us analyze the episode with Meg Wheatley. So I'll start with you, Gil. Gil, your newest book is Countercultural, and that's the title, actually. It's not just countercultural, but that is, (laughs) right? So you've outlined an argument that really is a great conversation partner with Wheatley's work. And in your teachings this fall that we've gotten to be a part of, um, you talk about the world that we're in right now being a condition in which we find ourselves, not a problem that we can solve, which sounds familiar to Wheatley's take that at this point, we can't solve these global problems, right? So tell us a little bit about your book and if you see a connection between your work and Wheatley's work. Well, I I think that um, my book and Margaret's work, or another way of thinking about that is the streams of thought that are coming from each are really uh, a part of the same argument that uh, that we need to begin to face into. It was curious after uh, 
listening to uh, the podcast with Margaret Wheatley, I went back and I kind of traced, you know, where was my connection with her? And I had started uh, following some of her work back in the 1990s, early 1990s. It was around the late 70s that I started uh, thinking about uh, and, and reading into a lot of the work that had to do with blending um, the new sciences, particularly quantum physics and uh, the Eastern religions, particularly Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were essentially looking at the world in a different way, a way in which the world was interconnected and interdependent. It was a world of polarities, not of contests. It was a world in which people could participate and collaborate, not try to control. And Margaret picked that up in in a way in which it began to apply to organizations. And organizations could have that kind of a life. And Marvin Weisberg was another guy who came along. So what I'm trying to say is that um, both Margaret's work and my work are stepping into a stream that had been long established. And connections were made, you know, decades ago that are now uh, providing a path that probably has more of a future to it than uh, our old problem-solving methodologies. So in a real sense, uh, I think that, you know, uh, her, her identifying the, re- the, the necessity, the need to face into a reality uh, without sugarcoating it, without saying God's going to take care of this, without wanting to depend upon other authorities like the state or, or the economy. Um, I think that that is terribly important because it's only after you do that that you're able to, to claim some agency yourself. Uh, and with that agency, say, okay, now what is the part that belongs to me? And so the argument that I have in the book is simply the kind of application of a lot of that to the congregation. The congregation is rightly placed. It has the right values. It has it holds a truth mm-hmm. about how we are all part of the same family. We are interconnected. We are interdependent. We are not people who have ever been invited to control anything. Uh, and so how do you live out of that then? And so I, I think that um, this is just uh, not just Margaret and, and, and me, but all of us in our work, you know, kind of standing in this dream, trying to make sense out of something that we know is going to happen. And I don't think it's happened yet. That's one of the other things that really is, is important to me. We know it's going to happen, and yet we're going to still have to claim our place in it. And the remarkable thing that Margaret does is to invite us to do that is fully human, you know, be the best we can in the whole thing. So, so I do see that, you know, we're, we're kind of working out of some of the same truths. Mm, so good. And uh, Danielle, uh, it was so fortunate to run into you several weeks ago. And I learned that you have in fact completed Margaret Wheatley's training that she offers through the Burkana Institute for uh, warrior for the human spirit training. And, and you said, it's sort of like, uh, what was our cultural reference? Uh, it's like fight club. Don't talk about flight club. Like don't talk yeah, about right. it. Um, but I'm hoping mm-hmm. you will talk about it. Tell us about the experience you had uh, with the, the program warrior for the human spirit training. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, like what drew you to it and yeah. what have you been reflecting on since then? Yeah. So um, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this when I was with you all before talking about the soul ninja stuff, but so this all sort of started when I was walking my dogs around the neighborhood and I had this phrase soul ninja pop in my head. And I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do with that? What does soul ninja even mean? 
And one of the things that was sent to me by God or the universe or whatever is that I happened to be for a long time on Meg Wheatley's newsletter list, her email list. And I had followed her work for a long time. A lot of what I did at Journey, um, my church and the emerging church movement was based on Meg's work, just believing that community is the answer and conversation. And that's why we did conversations, not sermons. It's not the only reason, but I certainly felt supported by Meg's work. Um, And so anyway, as I had been praying fervently, like, what am I supposed to do with this phrase? This email comes to my inbox and said, Warriors for the Human Spirit. I thought, well, that sounds like Soul Ninja. So I looked at it and it was the, it was the inaugural thing. She was starting it. So I filled out a form, sent it and was like, I mean, if this is meant to be, I'll get in. And so there was that first small group of us that sort of started this work. And I don't think I knew what I was getting into. And I've never been more grateful to have randomly gotten an email and just been like, screw it. I'm just going to like see what happens with this. So I'm so thrilled that I just randomly sent in that application and got uh, selected to be part of it. Uh, that's where I got, I started practicing Buddhism and um, that's when my meditation practice started. I mean, I'm certainly still a Christian, but that's also, I think where my, where my false hope died mm. and it came mm. at a really important time. And I think God breathed uh, because I had stepped down from being the pastor of journey. I had let go of, you know, lots of what was happening in the emerging church had sort of died at that point. And I was really disillusioned. Like I had worked so hard and tried so hard to like force change in a positive way mm-hmm. and had felt um, extreme disillusionment that I could not get people to be on board with it. And I just didn't know what to, where to put all of that. And so it was a rough go to hear Meg say like, oh yeah, no, like that. It's just for sure not going to happen. It wasn't that you didn't work hard <laughs> enough. It's that you know, the abandon all hope of fruition was one is one of our warrior phrases. We had it literally on a piece of paper that like every time when we went into the room, there were these different phrases. Don't expect applause, abandon all hope of fruition. And I mean, you know, as y'all know, from hearing her conversation and the feedback, like that was so incredibly jarring. There were, there's like, there were three of us that were Christian in the group, primarily not Christian, right? Mostly Buddhist, um, one Muslim, three Christians. And we were all looking at each other like over lunch, you know, what are we going to do about Jesus with this? What I found actually is that, well, I think, I think Jesus also did this, right? Like I walked into Jerusalem with the confidence only that it was the right thing to do. It was his work to do. And it would not end well. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he left the rest to God and Easter came mm-hmm. out of that. And so I yeah. think for me, that was what made me say, I do actually have to die to this. There's this sense in which some of this Christian hope is, um, first of all, getting me out of responsibility because I'm waiting for God to fix problems that I'm that we as humans made in the first place. And then secondly, it's, it's taking me out of the work of asking what is mine to do just mm-hmm. for the sake. And so you know, it was, it was like sort of painfully refiner's fire clarifying for mm. me just to let go of the hope that can be, you know, I mean, I'm internal optimist. And so I, I talk about original blessing all the time. And I talk about God being at present in the world and active and all of that is still true, but I think it has to be true in a way that's deeply applicable to like real life now. You know, I, I resonate so much with what you're saying, Daniel, and that whole thing about holding up a hope 
mm-hmm. that is uh, is false yeah. is actually work avoidance. Uh, mm-hmm. We talk about work right. avoidance a lot that, uh, you know, I think one of the things that uh, churches get uh, so deeply involved with is this thing about wanting to force legislators to do particular kinds of things. Uh, and what they're in, in my mind, what they're doing is that they're trying to push their work onto somebody else yeah. mm-hmm. and tell that person they have to do their work rather than come back and say, well, what is our part of this work? And if you get past that false hope that, that somehow God is going to take care of this or the state is going to take care of mm-hmm. this, then it then it allows us to simply ask the first question, what part belongs to us? Mm-hmm. And then we can start thinking about that, because I think that the kind of hope <laughs> that we're invited to give over is a hope that didn't exist anyhow. I think that's part of what Margaret is saying. And that's part of what Jesus was saying at the very beginning. You know, you can talk all about Rome all you want and all about the Roman governor here all you want. It just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have to finally come to. So you all have just gotten to the heart of, I think, what got stirred up in us. It's this notion of hope and and is it, are we... (laughs) Are we abandoning all hope? No. Uh, uh, I mean, we would sort of decidedly say no, but but there is that false hope that that reliance on somebody else to fix or any number of ways that we can describe what is actually not the essence of hope that God has invited us to. Um, so... Yeah. So thanks for jumping right into that one. Okay. So there's another place where where we heard really uh, kind of double down and it's this notion of islands of sanity, which I heard her saying that what we do locally matters, right? She emphasized what we do locally. If we're not hoping for some kind of global change because we think that that ship has sailed and, and there's no going back on that. But she does say what we do locally matters. And so I'm curious as you think about that, how that informs the work of congregations. Mm. Well, it certainly makes it more important, right? That um, a local congregation in and of its own has to have um, life in it. It has to have that sense of presence in it. And I, I actually think this is where it dovetails with the work of Sam Wells. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. Um, we had him come uh, to Preston Hollow a year ago and talk about his work with of being with. But so the quick framework of that is that we, it's doing for, doing with, being for, and being with, and that Jesus spent probably eighty percent of his life just being with people. Mm-hmm. And if Jesus mm-hmm. spent his time doing that, then what are, why do we think that we should be doing? or, you know, trying to lobby for or whatever. And I think if local congregations can really um, wrestle with the question, what does it mean for us to be with this community that we're in, to be with these people that have gathered, to be with the people that have are connected to the people that gather here, how can we be with them? I think that, that mission will naturally sort of bubble up from that place in a way that makes a lot of sense about what our right work to do is. I, I think I would jump in at that point, too, and, and the connection, uh, that the local doesn't actually become important until you give up on the global. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that uh, our lives have been so 
accustomed to be able to stretch beyond our geography, whether we're talking about tra transportation or mm -hmm. technology, or we've, we've learned how to do relationships long distance in, in so many different ways. It isn't until we come we come face to face with that reality that um, globalization is not going to continue the way it is, that climate is going to interfere with most of the things that we thought were going to happen, that it's not controllable, it's past that part, it's not going to be all about out there, then suddenly we begin to focus in, okay, to where, where we actually have locus of control, which is the local. And the thing about the congregation is that the congregation is already there. It's placed. Mm -hmm. It's in the right. It doesn't know how to live in that place yet, but it's placed. And the issue is the congregation learning how to get back into the neighborhood, from my point of view. Uh, yeah. We've learned how to jump the neighborhood. Uh, you know, when people, uh, you know, kind of relocated further away from, you know, from walking distance to their own congregation and they began to drive back and forth, clergy learned how to go out to where those people were. And, uh, you know, and invite them back in. And so in, in some sense, um, we we learned how to jump over the neighborhood trying to be congregation. Well, you know, all of this is about us coming home and being where we are and learning to stop inviting people to our buildings as if that's what it means to be a neighbor hmm. uh, and learn how to simply be with people mm -hmm. and participate and and learn what their issues are and, and stop trying to solve them. Uh, it's a new role for the congregation. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I've not sorted out yet. I don't know that we have a language for that role yet. Mm -hmm. But it, it does have something to do with that being with that you're, oh, you've yeah, talked about, yeah. Danielle, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what triggers Yeah, it. it's a different question, right? I mean, you know, again, Danielle, you said, how can we be with them? Like the congregation asking that question. But for so long, we've been asking, like, how can we get them to be with us? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so even just a shift in how we're, you know, what the conversations we're having and with whom. And these islands of sanity, I mean, they can really only happen if we're willing to offer space of vulnerability and authenticity and honesty. And, and I think the church has some work to do there, too. Uh -huh. And curiosity. Yeah. She kept talking about curiosity. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that feels really, I mean, to both of y'all's point about what it means to be a neighbor and to be with, there is a, a genuine longing to know your neighbor, to know the person just, in front of you. Yeah. Just for what it's worth, I think curiosity is one of the harder ones because mm -hmm. uh, leaders have always been trained that they have to have answers. That's right. And if you have to have the answer, you're not supposed to be curious. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to come up with statements. The church has always thought that it had to have the answer. It was the gate of salvation. How do you help, how do you help Christians become curious even about each other? Uh, and so this thing of curiosity, I... I don't think it's an easy task. Well, and I think, again, as you were saying, Blair, I think that requires a shift on how, ch what church, how as a church we think about what we're doing. And instead mm. of being the answer givers, which I think was a terrible role that we were never meant to have anyway, because right. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you know, he never gave straight answers. So I don't know why we decided that was the thing we were supposed to be doing. He was like, here's a story that you won't be able to understand, like probably ever <laughs> the clarity. But, you know, we were like, oh, come and we'll tell you how to live your life. And I think if we make that switch to meaning makers, we're the place where you yeah. can, help, we yeah. can help you make meaning of what's happening in your life. Good, bad, yeah. ugly, whatever. You can figure out what the meaning is in that and figure out how to 
how that connects to you living a totally human life, you know? And I think that's going to require us to think about offering what we have without any gift in return. And I think, you know, Gil, as you said, it does require us to totally let go of the global. And Mm -hmm. I think we should talk more about this, but we, we think a lot about how much we lose when we do that. But what we gain is a, a laser-like focus on work that's just meant to be done. So right, like, for right, example, right. one of the things that I've been doing at Preston Hollow is like, hey, we need to just offer stuff because it's valuable and not because we're going to get anything out of it. Like, we're not going to do this. Can I can I create things that are not meant to grow the congregation or bring in people <laughs> who are going to tithe or become members? Not that that wouldn't be great if it happened, but like, that's just really completely secondary to the point mm-hmm. of this is great work to do. So come and hear somebody to be inspired or we're doing a new year's intention retreat. Like come and think about what you want from your life and be intentional about what this new year could be like for you. And you can come in if you're an atheist, you can come in if you're a member of this church. Like I think the church just has has to really be open-handed with no bait and switch about it to sort of cultivate that sense of authenticity and trust that people have really lost. Mm institution um, before that local church can kind of become that place of meaning and belonging. That's beautiful and uh, challenging as we have been so conditioned to think about our, well, it's the fruition piece of that phrase that was on the wall, right? Abandon all <laughs> fruition. Like put it up fruition. and just sit with it for a while. It'll, it's a doozy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to pull on a uh, an email that we received because I think it it fits in here and just get your responses. One of the emails that we received in response to to the Wheatley episode was from a, a friend and colleague, Reverend Dr. Paul Escania. And so we actually invited him to turn his email into a blog post for us. So listeners, you can find Paul's blog on our website um, and the link is in the show notes. But part of his reflection centered around this idea of becoming versus gaining, right? So so here's a, a, a quote from his. He said, Wheatley reminds us that true moral character, specifically being generous, kind, creative, and community focused, has to do with who we fundamentally are and are becoming rather than what the gains from our behaviors will be. So here's where I, I think we've already spoken to the value of the becoming piece, um, but I, I actually want us to play a little bit about the role of gains from our behaviors in faith. Like, is there a role there for the impact or the outcomes or the fruition at all? Like what, what happens with our behaviors and you hear what I'm asking there for you to play with? Yeah. I will say very quickly because I went through Meg's training and I listened to her that, um, I don't, I don't think about gains anymore. Mm. Uh, On my best day, Mm. she, she rightfully beat that out of me. I just, that is God's job, right? Like whatever, you know, it's just, it's just Mm. not where I'm going to, Kind of scriptural too. It is, right? There's a way in which that becomes really Christian, but I, I, I think that's the greatest gift is that she would just say, no, you absolutely never think about the gains. You don't ever think about it. It is not the matrix of what you decide to do. Um, and even in spiritual direction, when I'm we- meeting with people, 
you know, on the soul level, the soul never talks about things in, in terms of gains either. Like when the soul says, this is your work to do, it's just from the rightness of the work. It's from who you are and how God made you and where you've been placed in the world. And that's your job, right? And whether somebody ever reads the book or follows your podcast or what, like that is just for sure not, not, not your pay grade to decide. Your job is to say yes to what your soul says is your job. And it is about abandoning all of that. I don't know if that's doable. But I'm just, that's my quick answer is that thanks to Meg, I just, I try not to think about the gains ever. Well, that, um, wow. that's really messing with me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm an Enneagram three and, uh, you know, my whole, uh, self-worth is based on my gains that I can, you know, name and right. live and right. receive right. encouragement about. And so, <laughs> but uh, no, I, um, I mean, in so many ways, the church is built around measuring the gains. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we do with that? Uh, you know, our whole metrics is about fruition. When you look at, at least in our tradition, how we uh, measure clergy effectiveness, it's all about the fruit. And fruit is often in, you know, attendance and other kind of number metrics. And, uh, you know, so how do you even begin to help to see the becoming as a gain? Well, okay. So, uh, and this... Uh, <laughs> There are so many ways to go with this, but let's start with that issue about the, where the church is on this. Yeah. And the, the one thing I try to do in the book is use uh, Hugh Heckler's work to make the, the distinction between what is the organization and what is the institution. And that conversation about gains and metrics and measures and everything like that is the organizational side, mm. which is actually more connected to our economic model than to our purpose. That's right. Mm. And so we're not even sure where that, where that model is going to go at this point. And so this necessity around gains is something that uh, you cannot dismiss because if the organization is even going to exist, it has to attend to its own sustenance. So you just can't toss it out. But when you begin to talk about gains, I think it matters whether or not you assume the gain is going to come because of your control mm -hmm. or whether the gain is going to come as a response to who you are being. Right. And so as soon as we put gain and control together, I think we've lost the gain. Yeah. Okay. So I think, uh, and this is that whole notion of being countercultural again, that if, if the Christian message is anything, it is countercultural. The way the elites are continuing to, to exercise their control is by offering fear as a way of life to people and scarcity as a way of life to people. Mm -hmm. And the more you buy into that, the more that you're caught up in having to win. Because if you don't, you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. All right? Okay. So if you take all of that out and to say that you know, one of the things about the Christian message one of the things, that, and this is all about meaning making, uh, you know, this is testing your assumption about how you believe the world works. And if the world is not functioning by fear, then it has to function by community. It has to have this other sense that there is enough uh, and that we all have a place. And once you change the worldview, which is exactly what the Christian faith asks us to do. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, 
you know, you said that, you know, Jesus was always, uh, how, how did you say that? That he was always, um, you know, telling stories or, or, or somehow. Oh, yeah. Never saying uh, anything directly, like never giving a straight answer. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and what that, what, what that really makes me wonder is, did he smile when he did that? Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> like grandfathers smile when they give their grandkids, you know, the, the off answer because they know it's true, but the kids aren't going to get it. You know, did Jesus laugh because he could see? I mean, I think that's where we are. You have to accept a worldview that does not make sense in the current terms in order to live and be locally and to actually have some future here. Yeah. It reminds me when Barbara Taylor was here and she preached, she talked about the Tower of Babel briefly and she saying, um, it was so beautiful. She was saying, you know, I wonder, we always see this as negative, but I wonder if God was like, I think what they are going to need to do is just check in with each other more often. Like instead of everybody saying the same language and assuming they're on the same page, if you have different languages, you have to check in and say, now, are you meaning the same thing that I'm meaning? And that it was actually about God caring about the conversation and the relationship more than the efficiency. Right. Yeah, right. Maybe you didn't put right. it in those terms, but that's how I heard. And I thought, oh, well, this is, you know, this is being with, this is, this is Meg. This is all of what we're saying is like conversation and community is the answer. It's not getting it the fastest or making the most money or making the most gains. It's about, you know, even if it's slower, you let your kid help you make the cookies in the kitchen. And they, even if they don't turn out, okay, like that is the better way. So this is mm-hmm. the becoming I think that that is the metric that we've, we've got to turn to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah. the, the most important gains we have can't be measured anyway. Like, how do you say, hey, there was someone who didn't want to take communion and they came up, you know, and I saw their face and something shifted mm-hmm. where they have received something because something in them has changed. And like, what number or metric, right. like, you right. cannot, we know this already in ministry, the metrics never really pull the the real mm-hmm. stuff away. And like you were sitting at the hospital bedside by somebody and mm-hmm. something shifted where peace came in or, you know, they, they broke, they broke open and said, wow, actually I was going to try to say everything was fine, but it's actually not fine. And that was where God was right. Like all the things that where God actually shows up and makes, makes something move in us that helps us become who we are they can't be measured anyway. So uh, maybe this is humbling for us to know that we haven't ever quite done this that well. <laughs> but Blair, to your point, I also want to say uh, as an Enneagram number who also just likes to get things done, um, I'm an eight. So I, I like to get things done. I like to fashion the world into what I want it to be. Um, what I've actually found is that when I've let go of that, I have never felt more confident in the rightness of the work, the soul work that I'm doing. Like it's incredibly, when I think about when I, the way I was doing it before, I just feel tired. Like I'm Mm -hmm. like, Oh, that's why I was exhausted and had to like step out of pastoral, you know, right. Like that burned me out. And this actually is a sustainable way to live. So I don't know if it may, it's still hard by no means easy, but I have also found that it, um, you have enough. Like I don't, feel like I'm so guided and supported, even though I have given up the gains, right? Mm. Yeah, I so appreciate that and and resonate with that. And, you know, one of the questions that I asked Meg after we finished recording while we were uploading uh, was, 
and I think it's right along this, this point, I just said, you know, I've got a two-year-old and what do I do? <laughs> you know, like what, you know, given this reality that now you've helped me to face, what am I supposed to do with that? And raising this, this kid for the next generation, you know, in the world today. And, and she just said, you just demonstrate to her the best of human values in you. That's right. And gosh, I've been like, I'm tearing up thinking about that. Like that, you know, I was like, well, give me a checklist. Like, what do I need to, you know, and that's it. It's just becoming, becoming, and that that will communicate what is needed in her life and in the world becoming. And imagine if we had whole communities that were just committed to that together, right. holding the best of human values, demonstrating what's possible. Wow. That could really, again, here I go wanting to change the world, but I really couldn't change the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but that is good and right work to do also, right? Like if churches yeah. were doing that, and I think maybe that's what the church was supposed to do this whole time. Like, I think we sort of got off mission. And I think really, I mean, Jesus sat around with mostly 12 people. So when people would come to journey and say like, well, you only got 50 to 75 people, like, don't you want to grow? And I was like, I don't know, we've like tripled what Jesus had. So I feel pretty okay yeah, yeah. about it, you know? Um, I think we need to remember that Jesus was not about scale on its own, right? The scalability happened because truth, um, what did my friend tell me yesterday? Like truth is scalable in a way that lies will never be. So Mm -hmm. truth is scalable by its own, like in its own way, right? But when we try to make that economic or capitalistic or just American, right? In the way that we try to scale things. I think, I think to your point, we put control on it and that's where it gets really messy instead of just saying, I don't know, spending time with a small group of people and helping everyone become might be mm-hmm. the best use of our time as a congregation or, and just as people. Well, I think, I think we have to be uh, careful about, um, critiquing our congregations too much mm-hmm. as if they have done something wrong. They mm-hmm. have served their purpose appropriately for the culture. And as the culture changes, it has to change. Now, the the point is, I don't think we know what the congregation needs to be yet. Mm. We do know what's not working. Mm. Okay. And the organizational side of our our church and the voluntary association nature of the church is not working at this point. That's not why people are gathering anymore. But there is this deep, deep, thirst for meaning and meaning that can be found in community settings with other people who see the same thing. And if the church is going to have a role in that, if we're talking about the church as organization at this point, if the church is going to have a role in that, I sure don't know what it's going to be yet. I mean, I think that's what all this experimentation is all about. And so until we find out what the appropriate cultural role is, I think we have to be very careful about not slapping too many hands about what the church has been. Um, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of people who brought us this far. And and the truth has still, that, that nugget of truth is still in there someplace. Yeah. Uh, so how's that going to be passed on? And I mean, I think that's what you all have your fingers in trying to experiment with things. And, you know, and, uh, you know, Danielle taking the church down the road that doesn't have any perceived benefit, except that it will help people be. Yeah. It will help people become. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So uh, there's a huge piece of it. 
Now, the thing that's bothering everybody is what's the economic model that's going to support that? Right. Exactly. We don't know. Yeah, this church <laughs> can do know. it because they have they have resources, right? right. And that's yeah. it's yeah. just being faithful to the resources, but there's just a whole bunch of churches that don't have the same level of resources. And that's a really fair thing to point out. You know, that's just a different, it's a different quandary for sure. Well, and then, you know, and then the other part is that those other churches that don't have the resources, they're still doing the right work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, there's a little church not too far from where I am right now that just got a woman to step back inside the sanctuary for the first time in 40 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. because of the pain and grief she, she carried. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good work. Good. That's yeah, pretty good yes. work. And yeah. also is a church that probably isn't going to have any kind of an economic future. So yeah. is that bad? Uh, you know, I mean, let's let's parse out some of these things and, and see, you know, where the real value is. Mm. So one of the things I'm hearing you say is in in various ways is um, when we do the work of becoming and maybe let go of the gains piece uh, or the fruition piece or whatever and lean into the becoming, that doesn't mean we're not doing hard work. Right. right. And, and th- I mean, there is work to do. There's worthy work. There's there's meaningful work here that is what we're called to do. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to pivot slightly, but really, I, I can't pass up this opportunity to ask the two of you to help us with something that we're wrestling with in reaction to relationship with this conversation, this episode um, with Wheatley, because we've been using the two loop theory that Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Fries have built and, and, and put out into the world for organizational leadership and such. And, and it's been the model for our theory of change and guided our work over the last number of years. And I mean, the basic summary of the two loop theory is that there's a, um, a dominant system that is, that is built and then declines and then eventually a new system emerges out of that. And, and she said in our conversation <laughs> that she, I mean, really threw us off because we thought we were going to have this whole conversation <laughs> with Meg Wheatley about the two loop theory. And you hear it in the conversation that she basically doesn't think the emergence will happen. She says, we are no longer giving birth to the new. Those are the words, yeah. right? Yeah. So of course she's thinking about all these things we've talked about, right? Sort of this global transformation, problem solving change. And she's saying, you know, with climate change and wealth inequality and ethnic violence and all the big stuff that it's not going to happen. And, and so we've been wrestling with kind of the, what is ours to do as an organization that, that believes that new birth is always, as an organization and a faith and a tradition that believes that new birth is always possible, that that's actually the cycle that we are invested in as human beings, as a Christian faith. And and so I hear what she's saying, and I'm wanting to, I would love just your reactions and input about what we do with this, with the two loop theory, with emergence, you know, those kinds of things. So it's a little bit of a vague question, but, but very interested. And if you have thoughts about what our role is as an organization that we have seen as, you know, midwife, catalytic, I don't know what it is along the edges of the emergence to, um, 
to bring leaders together into conversation, islands of sanity, give space for their own meaning making, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'll stop talking and uh, would love to hear your, your thoughts. Well, uh, there's a couple of places I go uh, immediately, and, and I'm losing the uh, vocabulary for it right now. But, uh, you know, the whole theory of evolution is that the new species doesn't supplant the old species. They, the two of them have to live uh, during a, per- a period of time together until the one dominates. And so that's neither the new or coming out of the older. It's just new expressions mm-hmm. are happening while the old is in place. And so you know, the world is not done yet with congregations as we know them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They still have a function. They still have a purpose. They still are the base for the place where we're trying to learn how to be a a people of faith and and search for meaning. And so any work that we do to support and sustain that part of the known religious ecology that is healthy, that's good work. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and then being open for whatever new is going to happen with that. And I don't think that we have um, a whole lot of definition there. The one thing I would say is that Mario Wheatley mentioned that book about uh, refugia, Mm -hmm. refugia faith. And so um, uh, I I got that and read it. And um, it is a kind of an eco-theology well, Lisa, what does a guy like me do except go out and read the next book? <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, I love it. We all benefit from that, that, by the way. We, we all we Yeah. Do. Well, okay. But, I mean, it is a substantial thing to take a look at because the notion of refugia mm-hmm. isn't that um, the new comes out of the old. It's like the death happens. Uh, and there are these places where health and, and, and life and vitality continue to be what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah and come back through and and repopulate and everything. And so the thing I wrestle with is I think that that is what the local is all about. The local is the refugia space where things can still happen while the fire, you know, blows over and burns everything down. So I, I think we're trying to figure out how to make whatever is going to live there, come back to life. And that's where you, stay open to support whatever new is until you find out whether it's going to live. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that this notion of the Phoenix where, you know, the new comes out of the old, uh, I, I buy that right away. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that helps. Danielle, your turn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think you said it in the death happens. Right. And I think, I think this is what Meg is really good at making us face is I will only speak for myself. I tried really hard to tap dance and work and, you know, um, you know, hustle my way out of the death happening. And Mm -hmm. um, that was a fool's errand and I had to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I'm in some ways still paying for it. Right. But I mean, Mm -hmm. that was one of the first things to go in, in warrior training. I was like, Oh, the, like the two loop theory didn't work, you know, because literally mm-hmm. I was one of the people at the beginning of emergent village and we chose that word emergent village on purpose to, you know, to become, to describe what was going to become the emerging church movement. And it was based on this, mm-hmm. right? It was based on this idea that we could see the church was going to be dying in some ways. And I agree. I have always said there are forms of the church that have stayed and will stay. 
And we just, we don't know which ones will stay or whatever, but we don't, it, it won't be fully supplanted by whatever's coming, but a lot of it will die. And we need to think about what the new thing is to grow it. And my prayer and hope and so much work for, you know, gosh, almost 20 years was if we can just plant the seeds now that when everybody's falling off of this faith, you know, pitfall and we have places for them to land, to catch them and say, Hey, come into this community. We have thought about this already. And we have some people that can support you where you are and you don't have to feel so alone. And, you know, looking at how there's so much anger and cynicism and resentment and the deconstruction movement that I think could have been supplanted if the emerging church movement had had that been able to do that. But we sort of died before this anger uprose, right? I just, to watch all of that play out has been so incredibly heartbreaking. And it's just, I had to say it didn't work, right? We were trying to get out of the death and it didn't work. And hmm. I think the only thing that has helped me to be okay with that, because there's so much anger for me that comes about, like, I couldn't have worked any harder, right? I couldn't have put one more hour into work or like write one more book to like make that more of a thing. I couldn't have forced it with any more of my will than I did. And it still didn't work. And I think when I when I acknowledged that it was asking the institution to do things that it was not capable of, which Meg talked about in this podcast, right? Yeah. You can't ask right. anxious people to be calm. You have to calm yep. them first, right? Um, yeah. So first, I think it was too much to ask the institution 20 years ago to think that it could die. I, it just wasn't ready to think about that. It didn't mm -hmm. want to think about that. It was in denial, Right. So to say, hey, we think something's coming, you know, the wind is blowing. It makes a lot of sense that we couldn't get anyone to listen. And mm -hmm. secondly, when people did start to feel it, the anxiety was too high for us to have asked for them to be thoughtful about that in the way that I think we were and even ourselves. Right. And mm -hmm. so that helped me get rid of some of the frustration of not pushing that needle institutionally or more organizationally than, than I felt like we did. Mm -hmm. That's the one mm -hmm. thing that helped me come to terms with that. Like, okay, I think this was unfair for everybody. You know, like it sucks that mm -hmm. I worked really hard and it didn't work out. And it also sucks that they were being asked to do stuff that they just mm -hmm. didn't have. It's not, it wouldn't, it wasn't a fair thing to ask of the institution in the nineties and two thousands. Right. And so now what? And I think now what is we acknowledge that death will happen. And we also acknowledge that sometimes life happens afterward. And regardless, at the end of the day, I'm going to die and just hope that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Like you, mm -hmm. you just did the stuff right in front of you. And I don't think that's about outcomes. I think that's about faithfulness. So I think that's when the, sh the mm -hmm. shift for me goes from hope back to faith, that I have the faith that. I'm just going to do the stuff God says is going to be life-giving. Even if I don't see it, I still think it's worthwhile. Even if it's a little bit of life instead of enough life for me to feel like it's worth it, I'm just going to keep doing it, you know? What I, I think is so important there is Danielle kept talking about how it was, you know, this, this was birthed out of failure. You know, there are a number of times that you reference it either as a personal failure or as an organizational failure. That whole notion that um, uh, Bill Coffin had this wonderful thing. He said, faith is first you jump and then you grow wings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have to be willing to start out not knowing 
And the thing about failure, and, and the reason I resonate so much to that whole conversation about failure, first part of my work as a consultant was to do conflict work. The second part was to do strategic planning. They were major themes of, of the work that I was doing. Uh, it took a long time to realize that the conflict was not solving conflicts. The conflict work was not resolving conflicts. The strategic planning wasn't setting a new direction. These were not working. The very first lesson that failure can teach us is to stop doing things. Stop doing what can't work. And then you enter that stage, which is you've jumped. Are there going to be any wings coming along here or not? If you're not going to do that, then you have to find something that is worth trying, whether you know it's going to work or not. And I, I think that that's, uh, that's the part where we have – I love the fact that, you know, Danielle, you were saying that you were asking an institution 20 years ago to do something it could not. Yeah. You know, uh, we have to learn how to stop doing that. And that's the brilliance of what you were doing. You know, if it's not working, let's stop doing mm -hmm. it. Okay, now what? Mm. And it turns out now what means be who you are, where you are, yeah. you know? Yeah, it reminds me, I mean, you know, Moses didn't get to make it to the promised land, y'all. Like he didn't, he didn't get yeah. there. Right. And, and I'm also thinking about, um, I, you know, we're here getting ready to enter into Advent. And I was thinking about those kings and, you know, the kings, I think, certainly represent the dominant system. Then they see the star rising and they decide to head out and say, well, I guess we're going to check this thing out. You know, let's keep go let's, let's go from where we are to this. We don't know where it's going to take us, but we're willing to go. And I, you know, the thing about the kings, of course, is that then they get to experience this amazing thing. And, and then they go back just where they had come from, but they are different. So there is a becoming that happens, I guess is my point. Mm. They're, they actually have a becoming experience. And I think for our work, when I think about this two-loop theory, it's like we have to be okay with if all we do is create islands of sanity where people can become, mm. Right. that's it. That's it. it. You know? And and that's a very humble offering. Uh, mm. and And it's really important. Yeah. What what if an island of sanity is actually what uh, the church is supposed to be? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. um, one of the things that the author in that refugia book, which is, again, an eco theology, says that I think it, it's in the Ukraine where there are multiple places where the old growth forest was not cut down. And there are these little circles all over the place okay, where that you know, where that is. And in the middle of every one of those circles is a church because the people huh. who were doing, you know, the cutting were not allowed to cut those trees. And so you have these little islands, mm. literally mm. islands of yeah. this world of destruction mm. that have simply remained because that was their purpose. You know, what if the, what if the church is supposed to be an island of sanity? Well, then we have to stop condemning everybody because one of the things that uh, that Wheatley said is, you know, sane leadership is one that has ultimate faith in human beings. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, what if we've been reading the gospel all this time and we missed it? <laughs> what if? <laughs> what if? Yeah. 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 That's Jesus true. did create an island of sanity, right? Like that's kind of what he was doing. He yeah. created a small community of people. He hoped, which I mean, I don't even know if it worked entirely, but were, who were meant to be like the same people who were like, we're not going to make these decisions based on 
you know, Caesar or the, the Denari or whatever, right. like we're going to make these decisions right. on this other metric, which is not, you're not going to be able to see it. You're going to have to just know from your soul and your gut that, that this is the thing that's going to lead you. And I feel like, you know, whatever the way forward for all of our institutions and organizations, we do have to really listen to that gut leading, right? Right. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit because that's where, right, that's the invitation for sure. So we could keep talking um, and have so enjoyed this conversation. And my hope for our listeners is that our conversation together simply spurs new conversation for them as they um, are in conversation with their own island of sanity or their leadership team or or personally in conversation with some of these uh, concepts and thoughts and and stirrings in us. Um, Danielle, we've asked you to uh, to end us today and with a, a piece that you wrote. So after you finished your warrior training in 2019, you wrote a new forward um, for the 10th anniversary of your book, uh, Boundary Breaking God, and reflected on many of the themes that we touched on today. So would you read an excerpt um, for us as the final word for our time together? Yeah, I'd be happy to. As somebody who wrote a whole book about hope and promise, you know, Meg really messed with my world. I'm like, <laughs> I follow Moltmann. Like, I really am a hope person. And so um, this whole forward was just about me thinking that through. So... I believe another world is possible, and I'm also wise enough now to know I cannot possibly control its emergence beyond my own personal choices every day. Two things keep me going when so much within me feels like giving up. The first is my ardent belief in the goodness of the human spirit. God has given us everything we need to be the people God asks us to be. No matter what road we may have gotten lost on, God is present to us within our souls and is always ready to gently bring us back. The second is my deep conviction in God's promise of salvation. In Hebrew, the word for salvation, yasha, can be translated wide open space. You can also describe yasha as an act of completion of having all that is needed. And there is no fear in completeness. There's only abiding being with. For me, salvation is that place between human effort and hope's most unreachable markers that is bridged by God and God alone. I believe more than anything in the world that God has designed us to be people who actively and intentionally walk toward hope and promise. And I also believe more than anything in the world that it will take God's divine and gracious action to bring that work to completion. Faithfulness happens with us and within us. Salvation happens for us and to us. So we work for the now, we walk with perseverance toward the not yet, and we trust God to bring about wholeness, whatever that happens to look like, in however many ways it emerges. What I know deep within my soul is this. Even if things don't work out as I imagine, I still believe the Jesus way is my right work in the world. I'm committed, not because of outcomes, but because of love. I trust in God's love, which is where hope and promise lead us inevitably. And also, I love God. That counts for something. I'm learning to be fine, not knowing the details or seeing the fruits. My hope is not in a situation, but in someone. And that hope feels as solid as it's ever been. 
Thanks be to God. And thanks be to you, Danielle, and to you, Gil, and Blair. Thank you for this time together and for the gift of who you are and your faithful love of God and each other. Thank you.